0: Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere.
1: Today, we talk with Bruce German, a distinguished professor in the Food Science and Technology Department and director of the Foods for Health Institute at UC Davis. Dr. German uses human breast milk as his model to research the ever important question of how to improve human health via nutrition. He has a passion for precision health with aims to deliver personalized medicine based on an individual's genetics biomarkers, and other lifestyle factors. In this episode, we focus on baby's gut microbiome and how we no longer have critical bacteria that play a pivotal role in establishing lifelong health. Additionally, we explore the future of nutrition and potential avenues for revolutionary changes to our food systems. We hope you enjoy.
0: Welcome, Professor Bruce German. Thank you for coming on today.
2: Well, delighted to be here. It's very exciting.
1: We'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story. How did you get to Davis? How did you get where you are now? And broadly, what got you interested
2: in milk? Yeah, great question. And actually, I started, I'm Canadian, uh, and started out actually in university, like everyone not really knowing what I wanted to do. Um, Got involved in plant genetics, thought that that would be my career path. Um, But uh, a mentor, Uh, and Candace suggested I become a chemist. Uh, So I went to Cornell University uh, to see what was chemistry like, and I met John Kinsella, amongst other faculty, and he said, uh, importantly, well, if you do the chemistry of food, you'll learn chemistry, and you'll also have an impact. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's right. That would be cool. So, um, got my degree there, postdoc with John, then applied to a faculty position at UC Davis, and uh, my particular expertise originally was in lipid chemistry, dietary, fats, and things like that. So uh, when I arrived at Davis, I began to build a program in that, um, uh, and and was, was interesting. Um, we did various things in relation to diet and, and risk of heart disease, um, actually, discovered that red wine phenolics have this interesting effect on on LDL protection, Um, but then was uh, named to an endowed chair in food, nutrition, and health, which forced me to step back and think about the broad implications of of what we knew about food, diet, and health, and a couple of things. I realized, A, we don't know much of anything. It's really discouraging how little we know. Um, Most of what we know about diet and health that we've acquired over the past seven years has been based on a single strategic goal. Understand the diseases of middle-aged rich white men. And when I realized that, we had focused all of this research attention uh, on this one discouragingly narrow subset of the population, I said, wait a second, I have to go back and, and, and think much more broadly. And then to an extent, said, well, if we're in the beginning of the genomics era, uh, if if the way we have approached diet and health has been biased by, well, let's be honest, politicians and the desire to, to live a little longer, if we could get away from all of that human bias, what, what would we do? We, we would ask evolution. What evolved to be food? And the minute you do that, you're Forced with a very unpleasant reality. Every organism has evolved under the constant Darwinian selective pressure to avoid being food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're delicious and nutritious, you're gone. <laughs> so, so so and and I mean, animals, fish, birds, they fly, they swim, they run away. Plants can't. So they've developed unusually clever strategies to avoid being food. So, so if you wanted to know how to, <laughs> how to avoid being eaten, then, then, then there's lots of examples of that in the evolutionary landscape. Um, but if you really want to know what evolved to be nourishing, there's really only one thing, and that's this bizarre idea of mammalian lactation. And, I mean, the mothers literally dissolve themselves to make a complete and comprehensive diet for their infants. And when you realize that, generation after generation, selecting four components in milk from lactation, then then you go, oh my gosh. Uh, And and, and at that point, uh, I I knew. As we pursued it, we realized, nobody studies mothers and babies. It's it's just outrageous. And so mothers and babies and milk just became uh, the the defining role of the rest of my career. And, and the only thing that bothers me day after day is it took me eight years to realize that. I want my eight years back.
0: <laughs> so you said no one studies mothers and babies. Do you view that as the most foundational point to set up the health for the human for the rest of their life?
2: That's exactly what, what the world should be asking itself. Right? We need to know what is truly human potential. Mm -hmm. We're at a point now where we have an existential opportunity to change the trajectory of the human condition. We need to know how much of your potential is influenced in those first months of life. And the more we've looked at milk, the more we've realized humans are the most phenotypically elastic of species. We can become all sorts of things. Uh, Milk defines, in many respects, what we can become. And yet we don't study it. <laughs> what are we thinking? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, if, if, you were, if you were to look at what we are thinking about from a research perspective, that's where the big flaw is. Mm-hmm. We don't take young people and, and say, think about what would be really interesting to know. We say, this is what we do. You should do that. No. no, no, it's what we choose to learn, to know as a society, that defines a society. We should have been studying mothers and babies in milk a long time ago. <laughs> Definitely. So why is milk a superfood? That's a question that I ask every day, and and it's, be, it's really because of evolution. Understanding everything that, that's living, you have to understand what were the selective pressures that got them there. Uh, and, Evolution is a ruthless taskmaster. Every trait in any organism got there because those who didn't have it died. So this relentless pressure, I don't know if you know about the Darwin Awards, mm-hmm. <laughs> for, for sheer stupidity, right, taking yourself out <laughs> of the gene pool, that's evolution. It, it's just, and, and so to have this biological process, lactation, where the mother is providing all these components of milk, if that infant thrives relative to other infants because of that ingredient, then that's now part of milk. These babies are gone, these thrive. So what milk is so valuable for is forcing you to think, how does health work? Because it's not curative of disease. It's literally saying, how can I make a better baby? Day after day. And understanding how milk does that is just fascinating. We've just barely scratched the surface. But what we've learned is really interesting. So what
0: are some of those things you've learned, especially when you start comparing human breast milk to other mammals?
2: But actually, when you look at lactation and milk across species, it's amazingly common across all species. Mm-hmm nonetheless there's some fascinating examples where different mammals have moved in different trajectories uh, in, in terms of their phenotypes their structures and their lifestyles uh, and milk has made that possible so so one is the, the hooded seal hooded seal uh, born in the North Atlantic on ice floes and and these seals are are, are born on an ice floe, right in the middle of polar bear country. And, and, and there the orduves d'oeuvres are the North Atlantic. Yeah. And, and so how do you protect these, these baby seals from the polar bears? They have to lactate. The strategy that's developed is fascinating. Lactation is fast. It only takes four days. But in each of the four days, the mother seal passes to her infant seven kilos, 15 pounds of fat. At the end of four days, that baby seal is 50 pounds <laughs> fatter. But what that means is it's got enough fuel that can go out and swim, learn to fish, free from the predator's polar bears. So lactation strategy in the hooded seal is to make this milk that's 70% fat. And wow. it's brilliant. It's the most astonishing fuel transfer system in biology. So, so that, and, and we'd love to know how the baby seal maintains metabolic control. Yeah. Because it doesn't get diabetes, right? <laughs> but it's not exercising, it's just sitting on that ice floe. And it's gaining weight, <laughs> 15 pounds a day. If we could understand metabolic control, we could help people control their own metabolism. Every single mammal has a different story to tell. Mm-hmm. Humans, we still haven't broken all the codes of, of humans. Uh, they clearly have the biggest brain. Uh, mm. Wouldn't you love to know how milk feeds the brain? We don't know yet. <laughs> it's yeah. astonishing. So so one of the things that has we have discovered that has been instrumental in, in helping us Think about milk and how to study milk is, remember the model, mothers dissolving themselves literally to produce a complete diet for their infant. Everything costs the mother. If it doesn't help the infant, the cost to the mother will drive it out of evolution. But if anything in the milk helps that infant succeed in its environment, it's hard to imagine anything under more positive selective pressure as food. So we're taking milk apart chemically, every molecule in it, and, and lo and behold, find out the third most abundant component in human breast milk is completely undigestible by the baby. <laughs> <laughs> Why would mothers dissolve themselves basically to make poop in their baby? So, so that was a wonderful catalyst for research. First, well, what are these things? All right. so... One of the reasons why it's wonderful to be at UC Davis, we have some of the best people on the planet. So what are these complex biopolymers? Carlito Librilla, the finest chemist on the planet. And he studies, builds analytical tools to be able to measure complex biopolymers. He, human milk, what are they? These undigestible molecules are carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. They're like fiber, but little chunks. And so Carlito developed analytical platforms to measure every single one of these complex polymers. And there's dozens of them. And they're really abundant. He developed analytical techniques so sensitive and so accurate, we can measure every single oligosaccharide, these complex carbohydrates, going into a baby and coming out of <laughs> <laughs> so it. It's, so now we know what they are. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily tell us what they do. So we had various ideas, and one of them was, well, if they don't feed the baby, they must feed something else. Maybe they feed bacteria. Mm -hmm. So again, UC Davis, David Mills, world-famous microbial ecologist, he studies microbial ecosystems from wine vats to the human intestine. Mm -hmm. We isolated these complex, undigestible carbohydrates from breast milk, gave them to Dave, the bacteria grow on them was certain they did. Mm-hmm. They don't. <laughs> he drank bacterium after bacterium. They do not make bacteria grow. We found one. Bifidobacterium melongum subspecies infantis. And when David analyzed the genome of this bacteria, lo and behold, gene after gene encoding enzymes to break down and access all the sugars than the complex carbohydrates of breast milk. That's when we realized these oligosaccharides in breast milk, they're not feeding bacteria. If they fed all bacteria, the baby would be at peril. (laughs) It would be a huge threat. No, no, it feeds one. (laughs) Make sure that that baby is protected by feeding this one Mm bacterium. So we then began to look. The babies have this. Um, To our horror, uh, they weren't. Uh, we found out that babies have basically lost it. Over the past 100 years, antibiotics, cesarean sections, infant formula, hygiene have gradually eliminated this bacteria. So most babies don't have it anymore.
0: Is this a U.S.
2: thing or internationally? If you look where modern medicine has not yet reached, then all the babies there have bifidobacteria longum, subspecies infantis. hmm Everywhere modern medicine has gone, then we've inadvertently lost it. And so we immediately said, oh, we found something that wasn't there. (laughs) How do we do that? It's because we saw the oligosaccharides. This infantus clearly evolved to consume. them. It should be in babies. It's lost. And then we added an an obvious question. Well, can you put it back? (laughs) <laughs> right, It's lost. And so that, that's when Mark Underwood, uh, who's head of neonatology uh, at the medical school, uh, taught us how, how tragically threatened premature babies are. So we, they're typically born by cesarean section. That means they're born sterile. Mm-hmm. He takes them sterile, puts them in an incubator, and they begin to acquire bacteria that will live on and in them for the rest of their lives. And where are those bacteria coming from? the hospital. This is not the way you'd like to start life. Yeah. So, so, and, they, and, and they typically um, contract a, a condition called necrotizing enterocolitis, which is an inflammatory infection in their gut, and a significant fraction of the babies who contract that die. Mm-hmm. So, so these babies are at peril, and so, so with, with Mark, we could ask the question, if you put the bacteria back with breast milk, Will the bacteria thrive? And they do. It goes from you can't measure any bit the bacteria till 80% of the bacteria and more in a baby are a single strain of bacteria. It's an amazing idea. Not our idea. It's evolution's idea. So then we actually began to, to see how we could put it back in all babies.
1: And have you seen in these studies, did you look at the babies that did not have any and the ones that had some from birth and had some manually brought back in, and were you guys able to look at the health through childhood, through that, or is that too far along of a time scale?
2: That's a wonderful question, and, and I wish we had started this long enough ago that I could give you an answer, but we've looked at um, protection from, from pathogens, and it protects babies from pathogens. Um, And and many bacteria that babies get in them aren't infectious. Mm -hmm. They're just inflammatory. And and so they're always inflamed. Um, The bifidobacterium just drops that. Uh, And and we've studied that. Um, So so protection from the world is is clearly one of the things this bacteria does. Um, We've also begun to follow the development of the immune system. Now, remember what happens with a a baby. Uh, They basically don't have an immune system. And then it has to gradually develop so that they're protected from the things that threaten them. That's the genius of immunity, right? You have an innate immune system to protect you from all the things around, but then you develop an acquired immune system that targets the thing that you've seen in your environment, which is a brilliant idea. Evolution did a good job of developing an immune system, but in the last 70 years, the immune system has been going wonky. Instead of developing successfully, it's been developing this inappropriate reaction to perfectly benign epitopes, autoimmune disease, allergy, asthma, eczema, atopy. And as the world has begun to look at that, they've realized that it's a modern affluent disease. If you look at the parts of the world that have the best medical care, the wealthiest people, and best-fed babies, that's where all these allergies and autoimmune diseases are coming. If you look where the babies are poorest, don't have modern medicine, they don't get these. What's the difference? Bifidobacterium longum subspecies infantis. And now we've been able to look at the developing immune system, and this bacteria is literally helping the baby to educate its immune system. So we're now, we've We've published on that work. Uh, The next thing, of course, is metabolism, uh, fueling babies. Um, One of the things, the geniuses of of milk, is it's using the bacteria to transfer fuel to the baby in different forms so, acetate and lactate. So, the baby's gut is unusually fueled because of, of this relationship. That means the baby feels very successfully fueled all day, every day, by this interesting bacterial metabolism of breast milk. And, and what that means is the baby, remember every organism, uh, from, uh, from, from worms to us, has a choice. When it gets fuel, it can do one of two things. It can use the fool, fuel to run around, right? Chase prey, chase the other gender, or it can store it. And it stores it if it thinks it's not going to get more fuel. So every animal has a, a choice early in its life. Am I going to live in a fuel-rich environment or a fuel-poor environment? If I'm going to live in a fuel-rich environment, take a worm. Right? Then that worm takes that fuel and uses it for activity races around its environment, dominates its environment. That's biology in action. However, if that worm early in its life is exposed to a very calorie-poor environment, then it makes a species-saving decision to stay small, don't move, and prioritize storage so it can last long enough to get to a fuel-rich environment. But that means that organisms... From as simple the worms to humans, early in their life, they're imprinted to the fuel quality of their environment. That means they can sense the quality and respond appropriately. But what if, what if earlier in your life, you're exposed to a calorie, what you think is a calorie-poor environment, but you make a mistake, and it's actually a calorie-rich environment? What's going to happen? you're going to be a sedentary, fat kid. You think you're in a fuel-poor environment, but you're in a fuel-rich one. We think that's part of the problem with babies and the growing inability to recognize quality of fuel and to use fuel to be active. We know we have an epidemic of obesity and metabolic surplus and storage diseases, and it's going more in children. And people are trying to find ways to, you know, get children to eat less. My fear is, no, no. They're prioritizing storage over activity. What we want is that they use fuel to be more active. And what's gone wrong is they've shifted from activity to storage. Children should play all day, every day. And if we've got better fuel for them, they should play more. So we think that part of that interaction between fuel and fuel decisions is the bacteria in your gut. And it happens first when you're a baby. So we're looking at that. So, yeah, we're realizing, remember the model, mothers dissolving themselves, everything costs them. So there is as much complex oligosaccharide, undigestible carbohydrate, in breast milk as protein. From a literally evolutionary perspective, it's as important to feed the bacteria in the baby as the baby. So the bacteria are fundamentally important. You have to feed them correctly, and you have to get the right bacteria.
0: So it goes fat, then it goes protein and carbohydrates that you can't digest. And then
2: fiber. Yeah. So sugars you can digest. Okay. Right. And they're, they're a good fuel supply. Yeah. Complex carbohydrate. You only access those calories if carbo or bacteria in your gut Mm -hmm. can access them. But that becomes another source of fuel.
0: Okay. So you can digest it afterwards, after the bacteria break it down a certain level.
2: They actually release metabolites. Mm -hmm. So in a baby... That's being fed breast milk with the oligosaccharides, and it's got bifidobacteria infantis. Then it's producing, that bacteria is producing acetate and lactate. Acetate is the, basically the primordial fuel molecule. Uh, it, it's a precursor for most biochemical pathways, it's a wonderful fuel, and it produces lactate. And lactate is the fuel of neurons.
0: <laughs> yeah. So if these babies, if they don't have the bacteria to break down, what the third or fourth largest component of milk goes right out the diver so are babies being overfed now to make up for that like lack of fuel
2: well we think they're they're being m- misfueled
0: so, so overfed in like
2: the wrong area. the wrong things yeah. right mm-hmm. so they're using protein as fuel instead of these
0: isn't that an incredibly inefficient way to like break down proteins versus carbohydrates oh, yeah. would,
2: you, you don't want to yeah. You want to use your proteins to, to build baby.
0: Yeah, How long does the bacteria last in the gut microbiome?
2: Yeah, well, great question. Now, And, and we think that's also the genius of, of this process. So, so as soon as the baby starts breastfeeding, and it has infantis, then infantis completely dominates that microbial ecology. It's just full of this one bacterium. And as long as you feed breast milk, that bacterium stays high. But then as a baby begins to wean and convert to other foods, mm-hmm. then Bifidobacterium infantis goes down. Mm-hmm. And once you stop breastfeeding, it goes away.
0: How long should we breastfeed?
2: It's <laughs> a wonderful question. Um, historically, humans have, have consumed breast milk as infants up to a, at least five years of age.
0: Do you know anyone breastfeeding until five years old?
2: No, the vast majority of people are Ending breastfeeding three to six months. Oops.
0: How can we create a breast milk alternative that matches the mother's milk, but also allows women to no longer be breastfeeding? Because I know a huge part of women empowerment is allowing them to give formula because they no longer have to breastfeed it. They can do plenty of other different things now. So, how can we create a proper formula to feed? the child and make them as healthy as possible for as long as possible?
2: Well, I mean, in order to answer that question, we first have to say, well, what is lactation, the process, mm-hmm. and what are all the things? Because milk, the minute you say milk, you've reduced milk, right? You've reduced it to a single term, and that's wrong. Milk changes, milk changes from the beginning of one feeding to end of that feeding, from the be- day one to, to, to day two, morning to night. It's a remarkable communication between mothers and babies. So the first priority should be to help every mother to breastfeed, to be as healthy as possible when she has a baby, and to be as healthy as possible when she's lactating so she's supported. So she and the family, so a priority for the entire society is to have every baby as much as possible uh, getting breastfed. Mm -hmm. There are obvious limitations for, for, for multiple reasons, The more we can understand how milk works, the more we can start to to provide alternatives. But we want to make sure those alternatives are genuinely delivering the composition and the function that that babies need.
0: Are they right now? No.
2: Unfortunately, um, the complex oligosaccharides are not possible, although people are pursuing biofermentation systems to be able to make them in the diversity that they're there and the abundance so that every baby can at least have, ha, have, have this dimension, yeah.
1: And I have one more question, tying back to what we talked about earlier, about how in the modern world, we don't have the B. infantis, and that's likely because of the abundance of medicine and access to food and all that. Have we been able to narrow that down to a particular cause that led to that decrease, or is it more just, we know broadly those things have led to the reduction?
2: Yeah, that, that's really the, yeah, the $65 million question. Um, it looks like uh, all appearances would suggest that transfer of bacteria was never a problem before, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Throughout human history, uh, we were literally Right, covered in bacteria, every time you touch someone, you transfer the bacteria. Uh, in fact, if you look at the behavior of humans, a lot of things look like bacteria transfer events. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, the genius of live birth and the unusual anatomy suggest that live birth is very cleverly a microbial transfer event. Mm-hmm. So in fact, bacteria were transferring all the time. And babies, right? Babies would be teeming with Bifidobacterium infantis. That means anybody who picked up a baby, they didn't have diapers, right? They are now covered in Bifidobacterium infantis. Pick up another baby, it gets it. So so bacteria transfer very, very easily. It's only in the very last few decades where we have, for in many cases, very appropriate reasons, said we don't want babies to be exposed to pathogens. Mm -hmm. So we started to clean up. Uh, and we make it so that babies don't get pathogenic bacteria, viruses, molds, parasites. That's a good idea, but no one was really keeping their eye on the ball. Yeah, and they missed this fundamental benefit. But now we know we can put it back.
1: Yeah. Have you learned anything from the few babies that are in a modern society that do have it?
2: Ah, oh, great question. You could join our race group <laughs> and test it. Yeah, we don't know that yet.
0: <laughs> and then I think you just started to touch on it briefly with the whole idea of like the baby's not having diapers and then you pick it up and transfer that way. But if adult humans, when they no longer breastfeed, they lose the infantis bacteria, how did the transfer occur? Where did the babies get it from?
2: Yeah, well, you're asking a question that, that we can't answer. Mm-hmm. We can answer the question, how could they? Right? Sure. Um, as I say, pick up a baby, you know, pick up another baby, you do it. Um, but, but we think it was because babies historically, in, in, in a human situation, were always there. There were always babies. And whatever size of, uh, of human unit, there were always babies. And you're picking them up. So there, th- this bacterium was transferring and evolving uh, in, in the presence of, of this remarkable... Food and milk, and yeah, it was never a problem before. Yeah, uh, it it just is now. But you can put it back.
0: Yeah. Before we start to transition, can you explain just how problematic being inflamed is? Whether you're a baby or an adult, what say percent of disease is caused? Maybe not indir- like directly, but indirectly through inflammation
2: oh yeah that that is the multi-trillion dollar question (laughs) um and so so the immune system uh is, is is this is the reason why we're here all right and the immune system has to literally sit there quiet not doing anything until you're threatened and then it has to respond grow divide appropriately and attack the threat and that doesn't matter whether that threat is viral or bacterial or parasitic. Your immune system has to be able to do all these amazing things. And it, it does most of them extremely well. In the last few uh, decades, it's become clear that our immune system, for reasons we don't completely understand now, is typically hyperactivated.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And what that means is the immune system is multiplied more than perhaps it should. It's deployed to more tissues more aggressively than it should. And when it gets there, it starts the process of attacking potential threats. And and like any other protection system, there are consequences. And the immune system uses chemicals and enzymes to attack other organisms And when they do that, there's what's called collateral damage. So you start producing molecules that damage your tissue. The most vivid example of that, of course, is the destruction of soft tissue in your joints. And it's most extreme things like rheumatoid arthritis. But that's where you don't have an infectious agent. Uh, Your own immune system is degrading your own tissues. And the more we look at the diseases that are coming from enjoying a long life, is, is, is the collateral damage of the immune system, what's called inflammation. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the main sources of inappropriate activation in the immune system is your intestine. We've made this pact with microbes, uh, over the millennia of uh, of animals, that we harbor bacteria in us that help us to digest. Mm -hmm. And and you see that most vividly in in things like ruminants and uh, and herbivorous animals, where they scavenge an awful lot of the calories as fuel by the bacteria breaking down the the molecules in their diet that they can't. So it was a very interesting fact that we yeah. and it works beautifully most of the time but if you start losing control of that microbial community and you start getting more uh, infectious like or what actually is called endotoxin producing gram negative bacteria that activate the immune system now you've got a system in you constantly activating your immune system so the reason why people are so excited about the microbiome and understanding it is we could stop that. We could just stop all of those bacteria from producing inappropriate uh, metabolites and endotoxins, and, and all that source of inflammation would just go away. It would fuel us when we want, where we want. Uh, it, it would activate the immune system when we needed it, but settle it down when when we wanted so oh. the the goal of controlling the microbiome uh is very attractive yeah
1: sounds very exciting yeah. so is that why we're so inflamed now is an apparent imbalance between the microbial agreement we have yeah
2: that's a big chunk of the of, of the problem yeah the, 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 the good news is it's a controllable process not me speaking evolution might mm-hmm. mammalian human mothers control that process by feeding this bacterium, and guiding that that bacterial community in their babies. We need to learn from mothers. (laughs) How do you get healthier? Ask your mother. (laughs) Feed the bacteria, right? And and that seems to be where this science is going. And it actually illustrates one of the reasons why studying milk is so valuable. Because as you understand the functions of milk, you start to realize, ooh, that's what that's doing. I wonder if I could use that for everybody. Mm-hmm. And you use it in different ways, but the mechanism and the target then become attractive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like step one. You have to build the foundation to understand how it's built. Yeah, yeah. Before you can build the house. Right.
2: Yeah. But remember, the biggest problem that you have with developing therapeutics, drugs, is not efficacy. Efficacy is actually pretty easy. It's side effects. So, yeah. yeah. What yeah. else does it do? Yeah. Right. The beauty of milk is it has wonderful targets of efficacy, right? Making healthy babies healthier, protected, preventive disease performance. What's really attractive, though, it's the safety dossier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all they eat all day. So you know that the targets of efficacy are safe. So you can literally bring these mechanisms of action uh, to practice real fast.
0: Yeah. Could you speak on how our nutrition... And our diet is impacting our microbiome, which is then causing us to be inflamed and our immune systems to be hyperactive.
2: Yeah. So so again, we can use milk as mm-hmm. the model. So one we got very interested in premature babies, working with Mark Underwood and, and, and so I mean, thirteen percent of babies this year in California will be born premature. That means they start life. Under, Do you know why? Underbaked. Multiple reasons. Uh, mothers are, are older. Uh, m- mothers are more inflamed. Uh, and, and so there, there's not one reason. There are multiple reasons. Um, some we can, we can affect. Some will be tougher. But yeah, we really want to know how to nourish those babies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so one of the questions we had was, well we should give them breast milk. But remember, these babies are premature. Milk evolved to nourish full-term babies. So one more question, well, can they even digest it? They're premature. And can they, so we asked a simple question, can they digest the proteins in breast milk? And and this was actually a, a difficult question to ask. That meant we had to go into a baby and pull milk back out and ask, are the proteins by being digested into the peptides? And once again, I was certain they couldn't. They're premature. How could these babies possibly digest milk proteins? They're not ready for it. So brilliant graduate student, Dave Dallas, with Mark Underwood, pulled the milk back out, analyzed the proteins and the peptides that you would expect if the milk was being broken down. I was completely wrong. They Thank were God. beautifully. <laughs> Perfect. But then Dave Dallas and Carlito began to take apart every single peptide and say, okay, here are the peptides, here are the proteins they're coming from. So computationally, you could predict, okay, what are the enzymes in the baby that are breaking down the proteins? So Nora Caldi, uh, a visiting scholar, identified five enzymes that were responsible for breaking apart proteins and producing these peptides. Babies don't have those enzymes. Where are the enzymes coming from? So, lo and behold, Juan Madrano, the animal science, helped us. They're in the milk. <laughs> Mothers produce the enzymes. They're, they're inactive until they get in the baby, boom, and they start digesting the proteins, helping the baby. So, so milk is self-digesting. So that has several consequences. If you consume protein and you digest it well, then those amino acids nourish you and you grow better. But what happens if you don't digest them? They keep going, and where do they end up? The lower intestine. And what grows on them? Gamma proteobacteria, bacteria that trigger inflammation. So how do you make sure that you start this process of getting the bacteria in your right and the right ones growing, producing things you want, and the wrong ones inhibited. One always the get them the right carbohydrate. Another way, keep the protein away from them. So you have to digest protein right. When is that difficult? When you're older. The elderly have problems digesting proteins. Mm-hmm. So the horror of when you get older is you're beginning to move towards net protein muscle degradation. You want to provide enough protein in their diet so they keep their muscle strength up. That's critical. The longer you can run and play, the healthier you'll be, the longer you'll live. Unfortunately, if you give them lots of protein and they can't digest it, what happens? It ends up going to the lower intestine, Feeding the wrong bacteria, stimulating inflammation. What does inflammation do in the elderly? Accelerates protein breakdown in their muscles. So we need to be able to deliver the right proteins and the means to digest them. Again, how would you do that? Ask Yamada. <laughs> Get the right enzymes.
0: And then isn't there also an issue with inflammation in Alzheimer's?
2: Oh, yeah. Once, once inflammation starts going uh, in your joints... It's, it's, it's joint problems in your brain. It's neurodegeneration. Uh, yeah, uh, the destruction of your body by your own immune system is devastating. Uh, and, and we now know it's all connected. Uh, and, and remember, there's a lot of bacteria in us. Yeah. They're small, but there's a lot of them. So you get the wrong ones, it's not pretty.
1: And then taking another broad look growing up, you always hear you should avoid fats in your diet. Could you talk a little bit about the role, the beneficial role of fats and why they should not be demonized?
2: Sure. Well, um, we talked about this a little bit before. Is what we have decided uh, over the past 70 years is to focus on the diseases of middle-aged rich white men for for obvious reasons. They're, 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 They're the politicians, so The money clearly has been prioritized for that. If you take all aspects of health and distill that down to what affects a couple of biomarkers of risk of heart disease in men, then you can be confused that something that would raise cholesterol in blood would be a threat and a risk factor for heart disease. It would certainly look that way, and that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Certain saturated fats do raise the, uh, the levels of, of cholesterol-carrying lipoproteins in blood. And that seemed so simple and yet so compelling that we were just overwhelmed by that as a strategic model for health. If you want to get healthy, get your cholesterol down. No one ever sat down and asked the simple question, Well, is that really true? Right. First, is that true for infants and children? Are they really a threat of heart disease when they're young? No. (laughs) But something even more discouraging. So if you look at the big trials that were conducted early that established that the amount of cholesterol in your blood and the risk of heart disease were very closely coupled, those studies all consist of one gender. Which one? Male. We didn't even measure women. And lo and behold, it turns out that in studies done around the world more recently, guess what? That simple relationship between the amount of cholesterol in blood and the risk of heart disease isn't nearly as clear. And in fact, some large clinical trials have shown that in women, the risk of heart disease goes down as their cholesterol goes up. And even more tellingly, the risk of heart disease as they increase the amount of saturated fat in their diet goes down. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Could you get a little bit more nuanced when you're talking about cholesterol? Because there's the differences between HDL, LDL, because I think that's really important.
2: Right, so so it turns out your cholesterol is carried in different lipoproteins in your blood. Uh, it's an insoluble molecule, so it needs taxis to move it around. Uh, we have different vehicles, uh, and and it turns out that LDL are the cholesterol carrying particles that deliver cholesterol from basically the liver to peripheral tissues. Mm-hmm. So so and and cholesterol is a is a valuable molecule. Uh, Many tissues need it, and so the LDL delivers it to them. Um, If someone has very high levels of LDL, that LDL continues to circulate, and it can get old and damaged and start the gradual process of accumulation of LDL in immune cells in an inflamed artery wall. So actually, heart disease of LDL in men is, is the gradual accumulation of, of LDL cholesterol in an inflamed artery wall. But there's another lipoprotein, HDL, that carries cholesterol from peripheral tissues back to the liver to be excreted. Mm-hmm. And HDL are fundamentally important for what we'll call detoxifying. Um, heart disease in men typically, though not exclusively, uh, is driven by high LDL. Heart disease in women is driven by low HDL. So what you'd really want is high HDL that will take the cholesterol out of your tissues and your artery walls and excrete it. Um, We don't know how to increase HDL in blood, but all indications are the best way we know of now to do it is with fat in your diet, Mm -hmm. the right amount. Can I design a diet that's got so much fat and saturated fat that's deleterious? Of course. Is that a reasonable amount? No. What we need to understand is that health ultimately is going to be precise, it's going to be personal. We all differ. We differ from some very obvious ways male, female. We differ in activity, we differ in age. And so, we're going to have to develop ways to measure people so that we can say, this is what's appropriate for you. Yeah. I
0: was listening to a few other doctors speak on this, and they were kind of saying that high LDL levels aren't inherently bad. They become bad when you don't have the proper triglyceride to HDL ratio. So, or if you just don't have enough HDL at all, how should people think about their blood work and like their lipid panels and all of those things, because if we're only focusing on, Oh, you have to lower your LDL. You also said LDL collects on an inflamed artery. If you have high LDL, but your arteries aren't inflamed, are you at
2: risk? Um, Again, great questions. The more we try and simplify and say one, piece of advice for everyone, the more we can run into trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so LDL is, is a, a simple particle, carries cholesterol. Um, if you make LDL, but you clear them quickly, all evidence is there's relatively little risk. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as you have good levels of HDL. Yeah. If you're HDL, the best predictor of heart disease is not LDL, it's HDL. If you have low HDL, you're, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. In fact, the best predictor of longevity is high HDL. Mm-hmm. Not just in humans, in dogs. <laughs> <laughs> so we need to understand how we can improve HDL, uh, the, the amount and, and their function. Uh, and needless to say, uh, we're trying to understand how breast milk helps the HDL in babies. Yeah.
0: Have you started looking at the ApoB protein?
2: Uh, we, we've we been looking at all the lipoproteins in babies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hate to say it this way, but we really only care about babies. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> People have been looking after rich white men for a long
1: time. Mm-hmm.
2: They're in okay. good hands.
1: <laughs> Transitioning a bit. You know, we know the role of big pharma and big tobacco and the influence that they carry. Could you talk to us a little bit about the role that large corporations have on the food industry?
2: Yeah, that's a, that is a huge question. And The question, what, what went wrong? So I, I call these ucs, unintended consequences of huge success. <laughs> so at the end of the 19th century, This, our society and many others were going through a massive transformation. They were moving from agrarian, rural populations to urbanized populations. In a food sense, that meant you were getting your food from your neighbors. They they grew one thing, uh, they raised another, uh, you traded, you knew the source of food, you relied on it, they were neighbors, you could trust them. Then we went urbanized, and now we were several degrees of freedom away from our food supply. And it all had to be brought through supply chains and held in uh, what can only be described as scarily unhygienic conditions. And so at the end of the 19th century, the number one cause of most morbidity and mortality in the United States was bad food. And it was a disaster. Uh, and, And of course it was... Cutthroat, competitive, Um, and and there didn't seem to be any way that you could make food safe. It was carrying disease, it was adulterated, it it was just a mess. And then emerged the branded, packaged food product model. So companies could package a food product, put their label on it, and say, trust us, this food is safe. And that loyalty to the brand, which was happening in all sorts of industries, was particularly effective in food. Because now I could be guaranteed that that food I was buying was safe. So I would invest in more. The price would go up. The more people recognized that, the more money went in so you could research how to make food safe. And that worked. So the branded food product model incentivized the food industry to become safe. And we've done a beautiful job. I mean, the food industry has taken that branded product model to wonderful success. Works for food safety because an individual food is either safe or not. Mm -hmm. The problem is that was so successful that now that pervades everything. Now, the problem with food is not acute safety. I'm going to get botulinum from this. <laughs> it's, it's I'm getting obese, diabetic, hypertensive, inflamed. Mm-hmm. Diet and health is now the problem. The problem is we're stuck with the old branded food product model. So the attempts were made to incentivize the food industry, and they were complicit in this. Well, We'll put stuff in the food that makes it better for you. Operating on the basic assumption that an individual food is healthy or not. Well, that's nonsense. You're healthy or not because of your entire diet. Mm. It's the diet that matters. And, of course, we know that a diet for one person is different from another. It's completely at odds with the business model that is massively successful, the branded packaged product. So what we have to do is incentivize somehow the food industry, or maybe another industry, to become the stewards of health. Hmm. And, and when that happens, it won't be that they're selling food products branded, packaged, labeled, <laughs> colored they'll be selling health. It'll be individual, it'll be personal. And, and there's a metaphor that, that, that we use. Um, food will become soon a knowledge-based industry and you know, what's a knowledge-based industry best example Google Maps mm-hmm. right, there's this digital database in the cloud of all the streets and roads highways, bike paths and it, it's there that I can interrogate with my personal device right, and use algorithms to solve for a very simple value proposition where am I now where would I like to be? How do I get there? Right? And and Google Maps provides that. Um, from the metaphorical sense, what we want is the food supply to go there. What's my health now? What would I like it to be? Mm-hmm. How do I get there? Now, in order to get there, we have to construct the equivalent of the digital map of all the roads. and yeah. So we're going to have to take food apart. Yeah. We're going to have to know what's in it, compositionally. We've done that with breast milk, and we know what comes when you do that. So we have to do that with the rest of food. And, and what's really exciting about that is what we know is that diet affects our health. How do we know that? We've screwed it up. <laughs> right? we're, we're all Definitely. overweight, uh, hypertensive, right? So all because of diet. Mm-hmm. So if we can understand how diet works, we can flip every one of those biological pro- processes, not to get worse as they are now, to get better. And so that's what the real opportunity is. So Google Maps didn't build roads. What Google Maps did was open destinations. Right, so people can now go places they never imagined before according to their own personal desires, aspirations, preferences. Does everybody go to the same place? No. They go where they want. So the equivalent of a digital and knowledge-based food system is to open up health opportunities. We will get the health that we only imagine today. And of course, it'll be safe, it'll be nourishing, it'll be sustainable, And it'll be delicious.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Before we get into the future of personalized health and nutrition, can you speak a bit more about the things holding us back from getting there? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure this year, a new guidance came out in the media telling us that processed cereal was healthier than an egg. And that red meat is killing us. And all of these different things are being published and backed by what we call science. Can we talk about the factors from these corporations and these big food companies influencing the science being done and holding us back? Because that is actively, I see, walking us away from a knowledge-based industry.
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. That, that, that's fundamentally the problem. The food industry is making trillions of dollars mm-hmm. with this branded product model. And you can, say, you can see the critical thing for them is to get you to be convinced that this product is good for you. But of course, in practice, that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's say, okay, let's pick different foods and say, well, I'm going for breakfast, and I go to my chart. What's a good food? Broccoli. So what do you want for breakfast? I love broccoli. I, no, time for lunch. Well, I I want a good food. Broccoli. I'll have broccoli. <laughs> I get to dinner. Well, I need a good food. You know where I'm going. Yeah. I, no, no. What we have to do is solve for all the dimensions of food. It sounds complicated. It's not much more complicated than Google Maps. Mm-hmm. But, but if, if you had <laughs> a system where the individual roads were marketing to you, right? So there was an <laughs> old Davis Road Company, right? And they were saying, you guys, you got to come on my road today. <laughs> right. You can't believe it. it's springtime. It's a beautiful vista. You can see vineyards. But I don't want to go there. But it's such a beautiful road. Right? Yeah. You can see how we're trapped in this completely wrong model. What we have to have is a transformation, a literal transformation of the point of food. The point of food, of course, we can't lose safety. But the point of food is to be the components in an ensemble. And that ensemble is your diet. Is it going to be the same for everybody? No. In order to get there, we have to become a knowledge-based system. Mm-hmm. That means we're going to have to walk away from the product-based system. There's still going to be products, but now they're no longer the point. They're the components of the larger.
0: How do we walk away when they're funding heart research? Yeah, I don't know.
2: <laughs> I wish I knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, let, again, let's be honest. If we knew how to do that, I mean, um, Jeff Bezos became the richest man in the world because he delivered stuff yeah. right. how rich would you be if you made every single person healthier yeah the, 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 the opportunity is massive um, it's, it's just we've not got there yet what
1: can people do on an individual level to try to emulate that knowledge based system before we get there I know we're headed there we're not there yet and there are, as we just talked about, roadblocks in the way, what can we do?
2: So, and that, that's a wonderful question, wonderful to think about, and I really hope that young people start thinking about um, how fast this transformation could occur. And knowing that it's coming should inspire them to think about food and the value proposition of diet and health, sort of if we think backwards to Google Maps and the metaphor for where am I now? Where would I like to be? So, first, you should know yourself, right? The more attention you pay to um, yeah, your, your size, your structure, your age, your metabolism, will help inform you when you say, where am I now, health-wise? But you should also to be thinking, what would I like? <laughs> right? what, what aspirations do I have? One of the things that drives me crazy about the way we pursue activity. So if you come to the end of your life and you say, what metric, what measure would I have that someone had a good life, right? That that was, that was a life well lived. The one thing you'd probably say is, is pretty accurate is how much they played, right? If you played every day, the thing you wanted, you played hockey mm-hmm. every time you wanted, right? Every, and, and, and it would be different for different people. That would be the measure. And, and, and you can call it play, you can call it, call it spontaneous volitional activity. You just feel like moving. That's what we should be thinking about. What do we really like to do? And, and you look at people who are trying to get healthier, they're on a treadmill. <laughs> right? No, no, no. Right? We should be thinking, okay, if I knew exactly how much to move, and, that, and a sensor that would tell me, that's the perfect amount for you. You're good to go today. I'd say, what would I like to be doing while I'm doing that? <laughs> Who would be my wingers? <laughs> yeah. Who would I play with? How that, so, so we will see an improvement in the human condition that, that we don't even think about today, but will be wonderful. You'll be healthier than at any point in human history. And the signature of that, we'll play more. We will be the most playful people in history. And, oh, by the way, we'll be the safest. We'll be we'll be producing food in the most sustainable way. And everything we eat will be delicious.
1: <laughs>
2: and yes. delicious the way we would define delicious. Mm-hmm. Because we'll understand delicious, too.
0: Yeah. Could you keep expanding on what some of those future technologies might look like? You've just mentioned, oh, there'll be a sensor. But... What are some of those things, or where do you want to see the future of health technology going?
2: Yeah, well, we already have a have a diagnostic industry that tells you about your disease status, and and so we know to a certain extent what what that will look like. Um, but what we want to do is just change what we're measuring. Um, frankly, uh, I'm I'm okay with a clinician telling me once a year the status of the things I, I'm afraid of. I don't want to be reminded that on my phone every day no but the things that I aspire to do um, that 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 means I can play more hockey I can i can play more with my grandson I need to know what I have to do to do that more mm-hmm. and so it's the things that 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 can measure uh, those incremental improvements in my performance my ability to, to play and, and enjoy and and they're they're not all going to be life and death. In fact, most of them are going to be pretty small, mm-hmm. but that, but they're going to be exciting. And and so um, you're, going to, you're going to be able to measure things like, what do I find delicious and why? Right? Is it possible that I can have my cake and eat it too? Mm-hmm. Have something that's the most delicious thing I, I, I enjoy, and it's also the most nourishing thing? Yeah, but first we have to know both of those. Um, you do want to know the the elasticity mm-hmm. of our our capabilities to be able to improve that and 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 that's uh, things like how well do I remember the things I want to remember versus the things I don't I, I mean, we don't we think of memory as a relatively fixed property, but in fact it's not mm-hmm. and so a better life, we'd play more, and we'd remember it more. And so you could, you could recall those wonderful events, the, <laughs> the, the goal you scored, and the, 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 all although those things. So could you imagine that instead of thinking about memory as, as fixed and unalterable, is that it's something that I can start bringing into my control?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and it would be both sort of cognitive memory, but also be muscle memory. Right? Everybody knows if you play the piano at eleven, you're going to be a good piano player. Try picking it up at sixty. <laughs> Could you imagine muscle memory being accessible? Yeah. So, so that's what this generation, your generation, can now start thinking about health, not as disease, not mm-hmm. as 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 joy as as the things I'd really like to do.
0: Do you use any technologies currently to track some of these things? Maybe not to the extent that you're talking about right now, but some other ones, whether it be like continuous glucose monitors or Apple watches that track your heartbeat and like heart rate variability, all these different things. Do you see a function for those? Uh,
2: yes, but, but they'll be surrogates, and, mm-hmm. and you won't even see them. I mean, your car is measuring 25 different things. Yeah. And, and it's just fixing them as you go or alerting your mechanic. But, but here's one thing we're working on. So I don't know if you've been around eight-month-old babies. Not often. <laughs> but, but if you play a game with them, they'll start this belly laugh, this rolling laughter that is, it is the most intoxicating sound on the planet. So a baby laughing is an absolutely wonderful sound. Now, it's an interesting auditory algorithm to try and figure out what really is a laugh, but that's what we're, we're working on. But, but of course, the more a baby laughs, it's clear, the better that baby's health. <laughs> so, so one of the things that one could imagine is keep track of everything you say. And the algorithm picks the vocabulary. And already we know it can tell whether you're in a good mood or a bad mood. Right? If, you're, if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling de- depressed and discouraged, d- your language says it. Yeah. If I could measure that, and I could show you at the end of the week, you haven't been grumpy all week. <laughs> I did that. So that's why I say we're at the stage where the human condition will change. We have the capabilities to improve people's lives in ways they haven't thought of. What we need them to do is start thinking about them. Mm-hmm. Because until you, you think about them, measure them, and then demonstrate how you've improved them, not going to have
1: them. Yeah. In this conversation, we've talked about a few different ways that we can go about changing the future. And some of those would be commercial. Some would be personal. Could you talk a little bit on your end of your relationship with the commercial side and the process of starting a company at the institutional level coming from a university?
2: Oh, sure. Um, and basically what we're talking about is, is invention brought to practice. Mm-hmm. And Scientists invent all the time. That's what we do. The problem is most of the things we invent are of use only to a few other scientists. But every so often, you discover something, invent something, and you realize that's general utility. Everybody could use that. When you realize that, then you realize, well, how am I going to get that out? And that's where the University of California has been particularly forward-thinking recently and saying, okay, we can help. First, you have to say, what is the utility? Right? How are you improving the human condition? If, if that's an invention then we'll have to protect that in order to get investment to bring it to practice. So they help with that process. Mm-hmm. And then you're gonna to have to recruit people, the investors, who can appreciate, oh, I'd love to see that brought to practice. Uh, executives and, and employees and people, everything from engineers to lawyers, to say, okay, this, this is something that we'd like to see realized. and And for us, our, one of our uh, initiatives was obvious. We discovered this bacterium that's supposed to be in babies, it's gone. It protects premature babies, it helps the immune system, it helps all these things, but there's, it's gone. Can you put it back? Yes, you can. Okay, we're gonna have to start a company to do that. So the university helped us uh, to, to, to cover the, the discoveries as intellectual property, recruited investors uh, who shared the vision of being able to help mothers and babies. Um, and you have to, of course, you have to recruit people who know how to grow bacteria. This is a fastidious bacterium. It's an anaerobe. So growing it's not easy. so you have to put all that in place. then marketing, I mean there, there are a lot of things that have to go on way past the stage that you've discovered. Uh, and, 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 and yeah, that process is, is, is going forward. We think that the most important distinction uh, in products related to, to, to diet and health is are you a product-centric company that you think about your product, defending your product, or are you a customer-thinking company? What does my customer need? What can I help with the customer? We want to be that kind of company. Mm-hmm. So we think about the baby. How can we make mothers and babies happier or healthier? And... This, we are verging on the greatest time in human history for the agriculture and food sector to change. We have to go through a fundamental revolution. Mm-hmm. The, the agriculture system that was developed in the 20th century is a wonderfully powerful system. It's just destructive. Uh, it's destroying the atmosphere. It's destroying land. It's destroying water. Um, we have to completely change it, revolutionize it fast, fast. The urgency is, is, is amazing, uh, and all that agriculture then has to feed into food, and then the various new models of how to deliver this diet. So on the one hand, this almost scary urgency: we got to do this. On the other hand, oh my gosh, it's the greatest opportunity for young people ever. We need STEM as never before, right? Scientists who can understand the complexity of biology, from plants in the ground to microorganisms to human health. We need technologists to take scientific discovery and say, well, this is the product, this is the service. We need engineers to imagine and then deploy the devices that measure us, measure fields. Right? And then, of course, mathematicians. Oh, to be a mathematician today. <laughs> right? To be able to build massive databases and then interrogate those in ways that were not imagined before. Um, I mean, if you were a young, young people, ag uh, and food, nothing comes close. No, it's it's the hum- biggest human enterprise now, think of what it's gonna be. Yeah. Yeah.
0: How do you split your time as a professor, researching, teaching, starting companies? Does the university allow you to maybe back off of some roles as you try to build a company? Or are you just told figure it out? <laughs> how do you manage all that time?
2: Oh, well, I mean, I probably shouldn't say this. I I shouldn't be paid for what I do. <laughs> I, I should pay to do it. Everything is, I mean, you get to do what you want. Um, and, and they're all reinforcing. Um, the research requires young people, and so the classwork feeds back and forth. Mm-hmm. And, and the minute you find something that has general utility, then you immediately, now the experience, the urgency to get it out. And, and this is the most amazing university in the world for that. Mm-hmm. Like all these... I, I came out of childhood with two convictions. Now, I was one of those pain-in-the-ass kids <laughs> who kept asking why. right? That's skepticism. But I, I played ice hockey as a kid. So the diversity of a team and getting teams to work together, um, boy, that I—I—I'm I, a kid again. I'm doing this, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 so, it's not so much you have to make a choice. Uh, the priorities fluctuate mm-hmm. as, uh, as 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 research waxes and wanes, companies, but yeah, it's it's all good.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different keys, I think. The listeners could pick up as advice but do you have any particular points you want to carry home and to piggyback off of that how do you think students going to university should consider the idea of college how should they approach
2: college oh that's a good question yeah again we are at the edge of the most amazing explosion of technology in human history. And it will improve the human condition. We're not keeping it steady. We're, it's gonna get better. But we're gonna need people in all disciplines to race forward with the kind of ambition that, that the opportunity uh, deserves. Uh, they should pursue what they like. Uh, the, the, the idea of being told what to do is over. Right. The opportunities are so great. If you can come to a world-class institution and, and, and then say, this is what I want to do, find who can help you get there. Uh, expose yourself to as much as possible so you can see, oh, that's what I like. Uh, but, I mean, there's such a range of things that need to be done, and every one of them is exciting. So I, I, I would say to students, um, Imagine the world you're going to change and and make a better world, make better people in it, um, and then just find the people around you who can help. Uh, Some of them are going to be senior faculty. Some are going to be your peers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Ambition, bold. Don't wait. I spent eight years studying heart disease and, and fat. I want those eight years back. I want those eight years for the milk and babies.
0: Thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a great conversation.
2: Oh, not at all. This has been great fun.
0: Thank you, Professor Bruce Drummond.
1: To continue your learning, go to our website, DiscoveringAcademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.